Alrighty, everyone. Welcome back. This is another episode of Basin Breakdown for the month of April. It's me, myself, Tavis Killian, joined by Neil Snow. How's it going? And what? This might be your last episode for a while, right? You've got summer session out in Macedonia. Yes, sir. And word on the street is you might be king of the party tent. I have found a tent of twenty per <laughs> or twenty person tents, so we're gonna have quite quite the fun out there. And that's gonna be fun. I had the smoke shack, unfortunately, which meant uh, all of the smoke from the campfire wafted directly into our cabin when we slept at night. But hey, have fun at field session. Those of you listening, I know you enjoyed it too. But for those of you who have no idea what we're talking about, hang tight. We're gonna get right into some news. Everything that happened in the past month that was big, notable, we're gonna give it to you. And first things first, we're gonna kick it off with Colorado and the DJ. Niobrera and Piance Basins. First article, we've got new regulations to help clean up old mines and old oil wells, which is a problem in Colorado specifically. President Joe Biden and Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado have both introduced legislation to help clean up old mines and old wells. Biden's $2.3 trillion plan to transform America's infrastructures includes $16 billion to plug old oil and gas wells and clean up abandoned mines, a longtime priority for Western and rural lawmakers from both parties. There are 239 orphan wells in Colorado and 535 orphan well sites, each costing an average of about $82,000 to plug. Biden's plan, which needs approval by Congress, would jumpstart the well capping effort and expand it dramatically. Senator Michael Bennett has introduced legislation to clean up federal sites and strengthen bond requirements for drilling on public lands. The two new bills would, quote, restore local governments and taxpayers' important role in a public land management decision while ensuring that they are not left on the hook for future cleanup and remediation costs. And I like this. You know, it's a good thing. Maybe there's people out of work. I mean, prices are getting better, but they're not stellar yet. So this will get some people back to business and it's money coming from the feds. So eh, they're printing it. We might as well take it, huh? Yeah, no, I feel like a lot of these wells that need kind of plug and abandoning are wells that were drilled, you know, long time ago by <laughs> maybe a dad and his son in their backyard and kind of have huge liabilities but there's no incentive for any of the oil companies to take responsibilities so exactly and the last thing we need is 20 years from now to have another firestone so ultimately a very responsible decision yeah so for our second story we have a startup named net power that is building its first zero emission gas power plants in the united states one of which will be in colorado and the idea behind this is supplying our utilities without burning excess natural gas and contributing to global warming. Um, this technology uses a new type of turbine to burn natural gas and oxygen rather than air. As a result, the plant only produces carbon dioxide and water as a byproduct. The water can be frozen out of mixture and the pure stream of CO2 can be buried in depleted oil and gas wells or similar geological structures. Now, this is cool. We were talking about it. It's like Chem 1, right? You have a hydrocarbon, you have oxygen enough energy to get it to combust, boom, your byproducts are water and CO2. And if you can freeze that water out of stream and have pure CO2 to re-inject, this seems like a good idea to me, and I hope it works out, because if it doesn't fall flat on its face, I could see other companies taking a similar approach. Yeah, and I think in the, what part of what makes this project so economical while moving forward is that you can get some serious carbon credits kind of from this, and uh, which I think will be more influential in kind of the years ahead, so... The only hurdle I'd maybe see making this more expensive would be pure oxygen. I imagine that stuff isn't exactly cheap, especially in well, large quantities. And, and furthermore, it uses energy to separate that from that's nitrogen. That's true. So really, is it still carbon negative? But hey, if we can keep emissions down, I, that's what people are looking for and not a bad thing. 
But that's all we've got going on in Colorado. Niels, what's going down in the Powder River Basin? The University of uh, Wyoming actually conducted an interesting kind of study along with uh, this new these new plans for abandoning these orphan wells. And they kind of conducted a study to see how much methane emissions are being released from these abandoned wells. They found uh, abandoned and unplugged oil and gas wells are likely responsible for less than 1% of reported methane emissions from the state's oil and gas operations. The sampling that was conducted on 10 orphan wells in uh, Wyoming's Powder River Basin and showed emissions um, averaging 651 milligrams per hour. Uh, by comparison, the average dairy cow emits 11,900 <laughs> milligrams per hour. Based on uh, the data and other considerations, the researchers calculate that approximately 1,900 abandoned and unplugged wells in the state emit a total of 3.83 metric tons of methane per year. So breaking those numbers down, you're telling me that it takes about 18 abandoned wells to have the same methane emissions as a single dairy cow? That's what I'm telling you. And I understand their head's in the right place, but look at Colorado. They identified that it was actually controllers that had a problem with methane emissions, and they fixed that. Why focused on one eighteenth of what a cow emits when we can go to things like that? So awesome that this study was completed. It opens up new opportunities for sure, but there's definitely other areas to look at. Well, and I think I think this shows that the argument for kind of abandoning these wells should not be purely a methane argument. That there's other liabilities that should be uh, kind of the forefront of the argument. So. Also in the Powder River Basin, we've got Governor Mark Gordon signing House Bill 189 into law on Thursday, April 15th. Uh, this is new legislation that allows companies to use flared gas for cryptocurrency mining and also exempts it from taxation. The process of mining cryptocurrency is hugely energy intensive. You can pretty much Google cryptocurrency, environmental implications, anything like that, and you'll find plenty of information. But mining involves using an array of very powerful computers to solve random problems to verify Bitcoin transactions. Miners send their verifications to the network pool and are then rewarded cryptocurrency. So it requires a ton of electricity the more and more you do it because it's a proof-of-work concept. Gordon's office said Thursday that House Bill 189 provides an opportunity for oil producers to utilize natural gas that would normally be flared into the atmosphere for other productive purposes, including cryptocurrency mining. So environmental problems are the big concern right now, so I don't know how long this will happen because a proof-of-work cryptocurrency is just way more energy-intensive than proof-of-stake, but that is beyond the scope of this podcast. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there's lots of new companies that are streaming up, kind of focusing on this, so they're going to be pretty profitable with this and kind of moving ahead. Moving right along to the Permian now, we are uh, want to discuss a little bit about BP's new plans to end Permian flaring by 2025 with a $1 billion pipeline network. So BP announced that they're going to spend $1.3 billion to build a network of pipelines and other infrastructure to collect and capture natural gas produced from oil wells in the Permian Basin. Dave Lawler, the chairman of BP America, said, We will be producing oil and gas for decades, but it will be a certain kind of oil and gas. It will be a highly profitable barrel. It will be a responsibly produced barrel. The investment reflects the ever-growing pressure on the industry to reduce its carbon footprint and contributions to climate change. At the end of March, BP announced it has lowered its Scope 1 and Scope 2 emissions, those associated mostly with production, by 16% in 2020. I like this. They at least have an idea of moving forward, producing clean, conscious energy, and from an investment perspective, that's going to be very attractive. 
Well, and I think uh, this partially shows what they see partially with the benefit of natural gas, maybe a rise in demand in the kind of coming years as we try to transition to lower emissions and things like that. Maybe they'll see more profit from that gas instead of just flaring it. Our next article, I'm sure some of you probably heard about it, but Pioneer Natural Resources acquired Double Point Energy. Pioneer Natural Resources completed its second major acquisition of another shale producer in less than six months. Analysts have noted that in addition to being the U.S. shale sector's highest priced acquisition of the year so far, it is also the first to come after U.S. prices have held a steady position in the $60 barrel range. And again, remember, this was last month. I mean, already now in the middle of May, we have tons of murders, but you're going to have to wait another month for that news. Double Point, a private equity-backed operator, is producing around 100,000 barrels of oil equivalent daily, and the two companies did not provide a breakdown of actual oil and gas volumes. Pioneer is now the largest producer in the Permian Basin, providing us significant benefits of scale, Scott Sheffield, Pioneer's CEO, noted during a webcast on the deal's announcement. We are now significantly dominant in the Midland Basin, producing over twice as much as the nearest peer, he added. In describing the deal as a bolt-on transaction, Pioneer highlighted that much of Double Point's acreage runs adjacent to its own and is largely undeveloped, and too bad this is a podcast and you can't see it, but Neil's actually incorporated a map here in our notes, and just the the expanse of these properties across, what, five, six, seven counties? They, they have some acreage now. Yeah, seriously. Not but they didn't before. I think the thing that you start to think about, too, is whether they're diversifying enough, too, and if they're too concentrated in one area with this acquisition, if they need to kind of find ways to kind of separate and kind of get away from kind of what they're used to. So Yeah, that's definitely something. I mean, you see companies, do you want to be diverse? Do you want to be specialized? But we'll definitely get into a little bit with that with Equinor later. And our last story from the Permian comes from Chevron. Chevron has actually offered 73,000 acres of oil and gas properties in New Mexico kind of in this rebounding market as a form of kind of gaining some revenue. They set bids on more than 1,000 producing wells with 1.1 million of combined monthly revenue, according to a sales document. The properties could fetch 100 million, according to one analyst who reviewed the parcels, but declined to be named. <laughs> Interesting. The wells are in conventional fields in the Permian Central Basin, but not in the more desirable uh, Midland and Delaware areas, the person said. Again, it's merger and acquisition season, and properties are trading, portfolios are changing, and exciting times as the price is now hopefully steadied around $60, $65, but I think we'll see something better in coming months. Definitely. But that's all we've got for the Permian. Who's next? You guessed it. The Eagleford, where, again, things are a little bit slow, and actually our news comes from Chesapeake. Again, Chesapeake Energy Corporation, the once mighty shale explorer that exited bankruptcy earlier this year and was just mentioned in the previous article, is seeking to sell oil-producing assets in South Texas for as much as $2 billion, according to people familiar with the plan. The Oklahoma City-based producer is working with a pair of advisors to offer the assets in the Eagleford shale, said the people, asking, again, not to be named. The shale driller also owns and operates 220,000 acres of oil and natural gas leases in the western end of the Eagleford. And again, like you mentioned, this is people saying, what do we want to specialize in? What do we want to diversify to? And it looks like they want out of the Eagleford right now. Definitely. And I mean, the last couple of weeks, I feel like we've been reading about all sorts of acreage that's been sold. And I think that kind of shows you that maybe some of these producers over-anticipated the value of some of these assets when they first bought into them. 
I know we've only had two Chesapeake articles so far, but Niels, I am hungry for more Chesapeake news. Can you take me to the scoop stack and deliver? <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, we're going right to their hometown, so we got plenty of news about them. But interestingly enough, Chesapeake, I may be taking a slight gamble trying to gain some of this revenue, has been experimenting with a new type of completions uh, involving wet sand. Basically, wet sand is the same as regular sand minus the drying process. This in turn saves resources and time that would have been poured into gas-powered dryers, which in turn lowers the cost by about $11 per ton, which could save 2% of well costs. Additionally, the saved gas promotes a ESG-friendly message, not to mention it eliminates the concern of breathing in silica dust. This is all great news for the company that has just emerged from bankruptcy as they plan to implement the use of wet sand completions at every possible opportunity. Now, quick disclaimer, Niels and I are a little bit young. I don't really have a lot of completions experience, do you? Not a whole lot. <laughs> so I don't know why they were drying the sand before, but essentially this saves on the gas you would have needed to dry the sand. And like we mentioned, silica dust, that'll scar up your lungs and over long periods of time of working around it, make it difficult to breathe. So that definitely makes it safer to work around. And 2% savings on your well costs? That is something to talk about. But is that enough Chesapeake news? I say no. Chesapeake Energy CEO Doug Lawler is stepping down, and I think that's about all we'll talk about this company today. He'll be leaving the company at the end of that last month, and little more than two months after the shale gas pioneer emerged from the bankruptcy. The Oklahoma City-based company said Tuesday that Mike Wickterick, who became Chesapeake's chairman in February, will serve as interim CEO as it searches for a new top executive. In an email to employees reviewed by the Wall Street Journal, Mr. Wickterick said Mr. Lawler's departure is not a reflection of his performance or the result of any action on his part, and that the outgoing executive left the company in a great position for future success. And I mean, we were talking about this earlier. Chesapeake has had it rough since Doug took over for Aubrey McClendon. Things were terrible. They bet heavy on gas just a little too early. Then we had the shale boom. Then we had 2020. So it has been a wild ride for him, and I am excited to see what he ends up doing next. And of course, I hate to see a ore digger alumni being taken over for a a Longhorn alumni, but maybe it's for the best, I guess. Some more news in Oklahoma. The Getka Group will build up to 40 megawatts of solar generation in Cushing, Oklahoma, to power data centers, terminal operators, and pipelines in fossil fuel facilities. The chairman and CEO of the Getka Group said Getka isn't just purchasing offsets, but we are setting a standard for the physical reduction in emissions while the world still relies on oil and gas to serve its energy supply. Getka's integrated energy strategy combines investments in low-carbon technologies with responsible oil and refined products and production and delivery. We are rethinking energy and rebuilding energy infrastructure to adapt to the world's ever-changing needs. This is how I like to see renewable resources used. I don't think it's appropriate to you know, put all of LA on solar power, but when you just have infrastructure that, hey, there's oil being stored out there already, we know we're going to have to move it. To supplement some of that power with solar, that is awesome. Well, and I think this is how the energy transition needs to take place, that we they kind of need to support each other in a way to kind of make it happen. So you really like to see things like this where, the, like you said, they're, you're using implementing renewables slowly and kind of it's able to almost assist in the oil and gas production. So. Definitely. I mean, it, it almost sounds disrespectful to say assist, but really that's what's going on. And it would have happened with the Keystone XL pipeline. They wanted to support almost 100% of their power needs using, well, when it was available, renewable and solar. But we all know how that story ended. 
Next up, we've got California, and Niels is going to tell us a little bit about a story you may already be familiar with, but still important nonetheless. Yeah, California had an interesting bill that kind of got proposed to outlaw hydraulic fracturing, and this proposal actually failed in the California legislature. And this bill would have banned fracking as well as a series of other well injection methods to extract oil. It would have also prohibited wells from operating within 2,500 foot of homes and schools, healthcare facilities, and other populated areas. It was a big bill. There was, like you mentioned, there was that setback. There was banning a lot of EOR techniques. So, of course, the industry <laughs> was up in arms against it. But then there's still other people, there's constituents who are mad saying that Newsom isn't doing enough. And I'm sure you've seen the news about some of the re-elections, nutty stuff. But he also announced plans to ban hydraulic fracturing by 2024 as part of a longer term aim to end all oil extraction in the state. The governor has ordered the state's top oil regulator to implement regulations to stop issuing new fracking permits by 2024. He's also directed the state's Open Air Resources Agency to look at ways to phase out oil extraction completely by 2045. The plan aligns with the state's broader goals to reach net zero carbon dioxide emissions by 2045. In September, Newsom said that fracking accounts for less than 2% of some of the state's oil production, but the plan to end the practice is a symbolic step. However, some industry groups put that figure closer to 20%. Personally, I don't know if I'd go that high. A lot of it comes around to really steam injection and other techniques like that. But again, he mentioned it's a symbolic step. Most people don't know that almost none of the production, virtually none, comes from fracking. So, I mean, I, I guess all the power to them. It doesn't really affect it too many people. Yeah, I think the two largest criticisms that I've heard about both the, the governor's kind of stance as well as this almost ban that went through is the fact that uh, just by banning things, you aren't really, you got you to gotta shift your kind of reliance a little bit to a new source or somehow um, create decrease a demand in oil because if you're not decreasing your demand in oil then you're not really solving a problem by any means right and that's not only from an energy perspective i'm certain that a lot of this oil even goes to manufacturing so to completely phase it out you're gonna have to have a lot of industry shifts but as much as i dislike some of the stuff that goes on in california i'm really excited to see how they pull this off so i guess i'll just have to wait a good 20 years but you know you don't have to wait for more Chesapeake news because I forgot there was another article. Niels, can you tell us about what's going on in the Marcellus? Yeah, so on the Marcellus, uh, Chesapeake Energy has started placing methane gas monitors on uh, two different well pads in northern Pennsylvania as part of a pilot program aimed at eliminating direct greenhouse gas emissions by 2025. The pads, one in Bradford and Wyoming counties, have a total of nine wells. The monitors are part of a pledge to eliminate routine flaring on all of its new wells completed at the beginning of this year and reduce methane intensity to 0.09 by 2025. A good goal, but we've given enough time to Chesapeake. So moving on, we've got EQT who is seeking independent carbon impact certification of their Marcellus gas. They just launched a project where Equitable Origin and MIQ will oversee an independent third-party audit of EQT's natural gas production from selected well pads in Pennsylvania. We want to differentiate our gas, and Appalachia Gas specifically, as being the cleanest and the most responsibly produced, company spokesman Andrew Brees said in an interview. The score-based certifications will be based on many factors, including corporate governance and ethics, social impacts, human rights, community engagement, environmental impact, biodiversity, and climate change. Hypothetically, the company could sell these or promote this certification to end users who are as equally as concerned about the environment. Say, a plastics company that uses natural gas could obtain the certificates for use in promoting supply chain transparency to their consumers. And it is strange to me that 
these things have economic value now, but I guess we need some guidelines if we really do have these goals. Well, and I think they want to paint a kind of bright picture for the future of natural gas and kind of its its cleanness and its potential as we go forward and try to meet Paris Accord agreements and things like that. So, Which is awesome. And also they can go, hey, why look at the Permian when you could come here for clean energy? So we'll see how that plays out as time moves on. And then for our last basin of the podcast, we will be headed to the Bakken. So the fate of the Dakota Access Pipeline is at stake. I mean, hearings kicked off last month, and we've been checking, Niels has been checking, and we haven't found any updates yet. But so far, what we do know is that it is possible that the Dakota Access Pipeline could be shut down in the coming weeks. After a judge revoked a key environmental permit last year, he ordered the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to update their report on their environmental review if they feel the pipeline should continue to operate. Now, operators plan to ask the Supreme Court to intervene because, I mean, I've been talking about this for several months now, and several months back on the Basin Breakdown, and it's gotten to be a long, convoluted process. If the pipeline was to be shut in, though, it would create a whole new slew of problems to address. Some Native American tribes would no longer be able to collect their royalties. Grain shipments would also bottleneck as more oil is shipped by rail. The counter-argument would be the environmental impact that other Native American tribes protest, especially in the case of Lake Oahe, a critical source of fresh water. While there is likely to be no resolution soon, tensions remain high, and we will be sure to update you on anything else that comes down the pipeline. <laughs> hey, no pun intended. For kind of the rest of the Bakken, we have a series of M&A that we kind of want to run through. The first is that Equinor completed their Bakken exit um, with a $900 million sale. Uh, the CEO of Equinor, Anders Opedal, said Equinor is optimizing its oil and gas portfolio to strengthen profitability and make it more robust for the future. You were just saying, this is not the first time they've divested from their U.S. portfolio, and it seems to get smaller and smaller as they retreat back to what they know out in the North Sea. Yeah, it definitely seems like the North Sea seems to play more to their strengths. The next one to talk about, Diamondback Energy sells Bakken assets to Oasis in a $745 million cash deal. So what happened is they acquired QEP a little bit back for about $2.2 billion in an all-stock transaction, and now they're going, we don't want this stuff up in the Bakken, we want to centralize our efforts in Texas, so they're getting rid of all of that other stuff. So in addition to adding a foothold in the Williston Basin, the dual mergers helped Diamondback build out its position in the heart of the Midland Basin. But that's about all for that one. Our last m and is Hess selling its Bakken acreage to Inner Plus for $321 million. This deal strengthens Hess's development plan as some of these assets won't further be developed until at least 2026, which brings material value forward and further strengthens our cash and liquid position, according to CEO John Hess. And this is great because, like they said, they weren't going to do anything with it for a while, so they might as well sell it to someone who is. And this gets them a healthy cash injection, and uh, Enterplus will just be buying this with $150 million of cash on hand while sourcing the rest with credit. So win-win all around. People have different goals, like Niels mentioned. Everyone's playing to their strengths. Everyone's coming up with a new game plan because this energy transition is going to be a little bit rocky, but everyone's excited to get through it. But hey, do you have anything else? No, sir. Neither do I. I think that brings this episode to a close. That's all we've got. If you're looking for more information, you can find the actual written post to expand on some of these articles and link you to the original sources on rarepetro.com under the News Pulse section. Otherwise, you can find other episodes of Basin Breakdown that I've done with Niels, Kevin, Gunner, the rest of the Rare Petro team from the past, Monday Madness, periodicals, plenty of information to learn and grow from. Again, you can find all of that 
at rarepetro.com. Otherwise, you can reach out to us directly at podcast at rarepetro.com if there's anything you'd like to express. But that's all for this month. Thank you for joining us. And until we see you next time, take care, everybody. Thanks for tuning in.